Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context. Today I'm speaking with Mr. Roger Smith. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, sir? Uh, I am Roger Smith, and I am the author of the book, The Most Unlikely Leader, an unbelievable journey from GED to CEO. Where, where are you from? Give me, give me a little uh, about you. I was born in New York. Uh, when I was eight years old, we moved out to LA. And, uh, you know, I would say LA is my home, uh, though I have traveled and, and lived in a lot of states throughout the country. Um, and now I'm actually living in Florida. What was your... So I guess you did high school, elementary school, high school, and, and stuff at in California. Um, yeah, I I dropped out of high school uh, within the first three months. Oh, really? So that was yeah, that was thus the GED the CEO part of the book. I, I was gonna so. gonna get into that. I was just gonna see if there was if there was any high school at all. Um, it, it wasn't it wasn't long lived. That's for sure. Anything in particular that it was kind of that driving force that had you leave school early, so to speak? You know, um, I, I tell this story, but but I was like a pretty good kid up until the age that I was 14. You know, it was like uh, I was the star of the junior high musical. I was, you know, in the woodworking club, the chess club. B student, season Bs. Uh, the summer just before I turned 15, um, the hippie movement was just starting and I was looking for my tribe and literally a flip switched, a switch flipped. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, by the time I was 15, I was a drug addict. I was homeless and, and uh, a high school dropout. So it was pretty drastic. And, you know, for the life of me, I can't tell you why it flipped but it did and um it, it was a it was a pretty drastic decline very quick very quick how long did you live that lifestyle so to speak uh i was i was in that lifestyle for about four or five years of homeless and on the streets and um yeah about that long i was a i was a functioning addict for 20 years though. So you so, were still using after you kind of got your things together a little bit and kind of found a job and security and things of that nature, but you were still, yeah, still using. Yeah. And, and I, and I thrived in the job, but, um, um, none of it was very sustainable. You yeah. know, <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned, and I'm not sure if it's in the book or not, but you mentioned that there are certain signs of, a, uh, of a functioning alcoholic uh, addict rather. Mm -hmm. What were some of the signs that you, you feel made you that, that you recognize as making you a functioning addict? Basically that, that, you know, I could, I was able to really burn the candle at both ends. And, you know, if you're not functioning, you're not going to be able to do that. But I was, it was like, okay, I, I, you know, work hard all day. And then I would, you know, do drugs and party during the night and sometime during the day. And, um, 
you know, it, it, it went on for quite some time. I, I, I wish that had been different. You know, I wish that I actually, um, could have hit my bottom earlier, but I did. What kind of jobs did you hold when you were doing that? So, uh, my stepfather had actually brought me into a company that he had been, um, working at about six, nine months earlier. So, uh, he brought me in, uh, it was insurance and it was sales. Um, I can tell you quite frankly, I wasn't good at it. Not only was I not good at it, I was so scared. You know, they, they say like when you close the sale, you use the closing line and then just shut up, you know, and whoever speaks first is the one that's going to buy type thing. The back of my neck would start to shake so, so hard that I literally thought people thought I was having some type of seizure. I, I was so scared, so bad at it. And yet at the end of the year, I was the number one salesperson in the company still functioning, still doing a lot of drugs, unfortunately. How long did you maintain that and until you hit that, that bottom and, and what was it? What was that event? 20 that years. 20 years functioning in, as a salesperson selling insurance. And as a salesperson, I ran my own insurance agency, uh, had a lot of success, success, but, but, as I said, it wasn't sustainable. Mm -hmm. And in the book, you know, the most unlikely leader, you'll see that I move around a lot. You know, it's, it's almost geographical. And, and part of that was because it wasn't sustainable. I build it up, mm -hmm. self-destruct, move, build it up, self-destruct. And, and that was the pattern for, you know, 20 years in the deal. Got it. What was that defining moment where you realized that you had actually hit rock bottom? So um, I remember I was in, I, at that time I was back in California and I was renting a little cottage in Malibu and, um, and I'm on all fours and I'm digging through the carpet looking for maybe just a sliver of crack cocaine that I might've dropped. And, and I don't mean just looking, I meant for hours on end picking at the carpet. And, you know, and finally I said, Hey, if, if, if this is the way to live, I don't want it. And, uh, literally walked downstairs and started to walk into the ocean. And, uh, I just, I, I didn't want to live, but I guess, uh, you know, I look back, I'm blessed. I didn't follow through with it. And the next day I went into rehab and, um, yeah. And, and, you know, with a lot of work, uh, I was able to get clean at that point. And at that point, Michael, you know, you spend, a, it's a lot of negative energy that you spend being an addict. And, and all of a sudden, if you're clean and you can take that same energy and move it into a positive, it is amazing. The difference. It's amazing. The same energy, mm -hmm. just going in completely different directions. What advice would you give someone who is a recovering addict once they become clean? Uh, two things. Number one is I would say, don't ever forget who you were, who you are, were, and where you were um, at, at the very end. You know, I, I, even to this day, you know, 35 years later, I keep that picture of that being that monster, you know, in my mind. 
the the second thing is you know you create habits addictive habits throughout those years so you know for me when i got re- out of rehab i literally did the opposite of everything and i mean to the simplest form if i put on my right shoe first I was going to put on my left shoe first. If I brushed my teeth with my right hand, I was going to brush my teeth with my left hand. I was going to do the opposite because in my mind, all of those things that had, that I had done had gotten me to that point and, and stayed in that point of addiction. So I had to change even the simplest of things to kind of change who I was, what my habits were. And so I would advise that and, and then – you know, the other piece of, of advice that I would say is, you know, we, we all have our crosses to bear. You know, if you think about my life and, and my history and, you know, the prospects of me having a bright future were about slim to none. You know, I just I didn't have anything going through for me. I kind of subscribe to the philosophy that, you know how most people say, don't ever burn your bridges. I subscribe to the philosophy, burn them all. And, and I don't mean this as far as relationships. I don't mean like burn your, you can if you want. But what I do mean is that so often in our lives, we have like a plan B or an escape hatch. You know, if this doesn't work, I'll do this. And in my life, what I understood is, listen, I'm going to burn those bridges behind me and so that the only steps that I can move is forward. And what happens when you do that is you find yourself through perseverance and through creativity getting over that wall, through that wall, around that wall, but moving past the obstacles in your life. And, um, and I think that that was one of the things that I was able to do was to look back and go, okay, I don't have a lot going for me, <laughs> but if I push on and, and, and take advantage of every opportunity that I'm given, you know, that's great. I was fortunate. I had great mentors. So, you know, that also makes a difference in your life. Did anybody try to reach out to you to, and say, Hey, you're, you're in a bad space. We, we recognize this. What can we do to help you? Did, did anybody kind of like offer that out yeah. while you were in your 20 years? Yeah. 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 Quite a few people. And, you know, and I thought, what do they know? I can get over it. It doesn't, doesn't matter. And, and I just, I couldn't, it had been going on for so long. I just couldn't even see me doing something else, you know? And, and also, like I said, I was having success. So, so then I'm thinking, well, great, you know, I can do both. The, the reality is that I was having a lot of failures because I couldn't maintain the success. Right. So, but, yeah, but I couldn't, you know, quite rationalize that one in my mind. Do you, do you have any advice for family members or, or loved ones of addicts of, of how they might be able to go about to try and reach somebody that that's in a destructive path? Um, yeah, you know, I, I would definitely, you know, try to get them to meetings, try to get them into whatever, AACA, NA, GA, you know, whatever it is, try to get them into a meeting because, you know, one of the things that happens in your addiction is 
you you feel isolated. You feel like it's just you, even though you know there's a bunch, and obviously you're getting drugs through other addicts. But but in the end, you just kind of look at it as it's just you. And when all of a sudden you go to a meeting, you're going, oh crap, it, it's not just me. These people are having the same ups, downs, feelings, emotions, you know, shame, guilt, all those things, you know, that, that you have when you realize, you know, what you've put your family through and your loved ones through during that time. Once you kind of found yourself and, and recentered yourself and became clean, what, where did you start directing your energy towards? So um, then I was actually able to build an agency and keep it growing, <laughs> which is, you know, which is what happened. I built one of the, you know, most successful uh, agencies in the company. And uh, at one point, the founder of the company was, uh, was retiring and, uh, you know, asked if I would want to come in and, 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 you know, run the company. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. And uh, I was, like I said, I was real fortunate. I can't stress enough, you know, the power of multiple mentors. I just can't stress it enough because, um, you know, they were able to see things in me that I sure couldn't see myself. You know, if you, if you think about it as an act, you, you have a pretty low self-esteem. You have a pretty negative picture of yourself. So, you know, if people can see through that and, and let you know that they see something in you, that's so important. And that would be the other bit of advice, which is, you know, for loved ones is to just, you know, give them your love, let them know that you, you that you're seeing the best in them. And I don't mean, you know, being a co-addict, I'm just saying, you know, right. Give them, let them know that you love them. Can you elaborate a little bit on what you mean by multiple mentors? So, yeah, I can. So in, in my case, I had like three major mentors in my life. My stepfather who, you know, brought me in the business, taught me how to close, taught me how to sell, taught me how to run an agency. I had the uh, founder of the company who, who did just that, taught me about seeing the best in people and having patience with people, which I had none taught me about community, taught me about, you know, if you're going to take out of the community, you put back into the community. And then my third mentor was the CEO of the holding company. And he, he gave me a piece of advice. I wish I had known it earlier, which was, he said, Roger, nothing's as good as it seems and nothing's as bad as it seems. You know, when you're sitting there high up on that hill and you think you're all powerful and mighty, you know, it, it doesn't stay that way. <laughs> and when you're in one of those valleys, this too shall pass, you know, right. you'll get back up. And so before that, everything was, was peaks and valleys. It was so high and so low. And, and once I learned and understood that, then my life became more of an even keel. He taught me about, you know, the, before I was a very reactive leader. I was like putting out fires all the time. And you know, Tommy said, listen, Roger, respond to the situation. Don't react, you know, which is so hard to do. Yeah. So, you know, but, but, you know, just take a second, just walk back from the situation and look at it logically and then, you know, come up with a, with a conclusion. Um, 
And then the last thing he taught me is, listen, if you want to motivate, motivate with emotion for positive. And if it's negative, use data. Because I also kind of grew up in sales where it was like you yelled about everything, <laughs> positive and negative. So, um, so, so I wouldn't have grown to be the leader or the person that I am today if I didn't have these people in my life who cared enough about me to, to, to teach me. I, I often say that, that it's your responsibility to find mentors. You know, it's not like nobody owes you anything. You, you need to search them out. And, and then you have to be open to the coaching and everything that goes on from a mentor. But if you can, there's so much to learn. I, I agree that there's, there's a lot of aspects uh, to what you said about the reactionary response as opposed to the more negative responses. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think people, <laughs> more people, a lot of things could be mitigated if people kind of just took a, took a step back, took a breather, really assessed the situation, and then started moving forward. Uh, right. And that's in anything, Michael. It right. doesn't, I mean, I'm not just talking business, family, anything, you well, know, absolutely. It's just, any, yeah. any type of personal interaction. I'm, I'm a big yeah. supporter of that philosophy. Um, since you spent your, the vast majority of your career in sales, um, what are some of the, I've heard it be used that there's a way to take over a room, so to speak, and get, get command and control of the room. How does yeah. one do that in your opinion? So I, you know, I think first of all, you better check your belief system, you know, <laughs> before you walk in that room. And that's really important. I mean, I mean, that is just a basic, but people forget that. So, you know, you, you, you gotta have a belief in yourself. You gotta have a belief in the product you're selling. You gotta have a belief in, you know, the leadership in your company. You gotta have a belief in the company itself. And, and quite often, you know, we're out there, we get hit by negatives and we don't shore up our belief system. And all of a sudden it starts to form cracks in the foundation. And all of a sudden you start wondering, well, wait a second, is my product competitive? You know, is this the way it is? Well, is the company, what's their hidden agenda? And, and, you know, and, and start doubting yourself. And so, you know, I always say before you go into a room, just check all your belief systems. And if they're not there, then before you walk in the room, you better figure that out. You better work on the things, ask the questions, find the people that can help you shore up your belief systems. And then, you know, and then once you do walk into that room, then it's really a matter of, of rapport and trust. You know, do you trust me to to buy from me? Do you trust me to follow the vision that I'm about to speak about? And and you know the 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 way to do that is you know a couple different ways in the in the way of you know walking in the room. Um, you know, I never walked and I gave a lot of speeches. I never just walked out onto a stage. I always walk from the side, from the back, and, and I wanted to shake as many hands as I could on the way because if I could touch them, if they could touch me, then then everything became more real. 
you know, when I was one-on-one in a home doing sales, you know, people displayed things that they were proud. I displayed things I'm proud, proud of, you know, awards and stuff. So people display things. And, and are you noticing those? Are you asking about those? Because people love to talk about what they're proud of. And, and when you do that, then you can kind of create this rapport with the person that, that opens them up. Got it. Having a a small background in, in sales and it's more of the the retail sales, which is vastly, vastly different than what you were doing. Um, The ability to relate to somebody uh, I think is, is absolutely crucial um, to, for somebody to see that you're not, just looking them, at them as a stack of money and trying to make it a completely transactionary type of thing. Yes. To, to build up that, that personal rela- relationship, I think is, is absolutely crucial. When it comes to the type of sales that you're doing, do you think it's more important to have data to support or personal testimony type of support? Well, you know, life insurance is definitely an emotional sale. (laughs) You know, it's about protecting your family. So, Mm -hmm. so yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's more about, you know, creating the vision of, of what might be if you're not, you know, prepared, you don't have life insurance and you haven't protected your family and so on. So um, I think data helps, but in the end, um, I think people buy you, you know, I, I, I talk about characteristics of a leader. And so I talk about visionary influence systems inspection, but on influence, you know, if I want to influence you, I I need to get results. So if I'm going to teach you something and, and all you see me do is fail at that, then you're not going to follow me. But if I'm successful, then then you're going to follow me. It works that way in people buying. They want to buy from somebody who believes in what they're doing and, and that is successful in what they're doing. But the other part of that in influence is you've got to know that I really care about you, mm-hmm. that, I, that I care about you not, not because of how it's going to make me look, but because I care about you, your success, your family, and if I can get results and I can show and you believe that I care about you, then then you're going to follow my vision. You're going to, I'm going to ask you to follow it and you are going to follow it because you believe that your life is going to be far, far better, you know, w- with what I'm talking about. When you initially meet somebody, uh, more often than not, unless it was a, a, a warm or a hot lead, they're going to probably say no out of the gate. How do you typically get somebody to go from a no to yes? Uh, I guess what is the most effective way to, to yeah. build that rapport to where they trust you and believe that you're actually invested in them, not just trying to make a sale? Yeah. So if I get a no, the first thing going back to my belief system is I don't believe you're really telling me no, (laughs) because if I believe you're telling me no, it's over. So, so what I'm really thinking is, um, okay, 
I haven't given you enough information. I mean, the information I'm giving is so good that, that there's no reason why you wouldn't want to buy. So if you're telling me no, then I'm thinking, okay, I just haven't given you enough information or let's do it another way. You know, just because I've told you the information once doesn't mean that you should have gotten it in the first time. You know, our sale was a different type of sale because it was a smaller premium and, you know, it was a one call close. We were in the house and, you know, you, you did your warm up, you did your presentation, you did the close and you did the button up and it was all in, in, you know, in, in one thing. So, um, so oftentimes, you know, I had to go through that thinking, which is, okay, listen, they just haven't, they don't understand what I'm saying. And I've got to show them in a different light. I've got to present it in a different way that, that, that helps them understand it. And then the problem that most salespeople do, and it's really, it happens all the time, is they go through this process or there's a straight objection, you know, I can't think about it, I don't want to think about it, I can't afford it, you know, my cousin sells into all those different things. They go through the rebuttal and then they stop and then they forget to close again. So it just, it kind of just leaves it out in the open waiting for something. And if you wait, then, you know, then you're going to fall right back into the no again. <laughs> but if you close, you know, close on an assumptive closer. I mean, really, in retail sales, it's it's usually assumptive. You know, do you want the black bag or the red bag? You know, uh, and then once and then once because you've bought one thing, it's easier to add things on, right? I right. mean, that's that's retail sales. So, um, yeah. You've mentioned a few times the, the belief system. What exactly is it, and and how does one establish a sales belief system, so to speak. I think, I think the belief system is a total commitment to what you're doing. It's a, it's a commitment to the company. It's a commitment to you first that, Hey, I'm, I'm going to do this and I'm going to, I'm going to get it done. I'm going to, hit obstacles along the way. I'm going to get through those obstacles. I'm not going to be scared of failure. I'm not going to be scared of making the wrong decisions and I'm going to keep on moving forward. And, and, and that's kind of like what I mean by that, that belief in, in yourself that you can keep moving forward and, and get the job done. But it's a, it's a commitment to the company that you're working for and the belief in it. And, and, um, uh, it's it's being knowledgeable about the product you're selling. You know, if you don't know what the heck you're selling, I mean, what what chance does the prospect have? So you know, it's really really understanding your product and knowing your product and knowing which products are going to best benefit. You know, the, your client, your customer. It's it's all of those things, and it's and it's it's being willing to look at it. And like I said, if you're not sure of something, then taking the responsibility to ask the questions, to become sure of it so that your belief system is, is, is strong. I, I, I was a big believer in 
positive stuff. You know, if, if you thought about it and you go, well, wait a second, for every one person that told me yes, there was three that told me no. So I was getting way more negatives than I was positives. And, and it was important to me to listen to, you know, well, at that time, you know, cassette tapes and <laughs> CDs. <laughs> what are those? But, <laughs> you know, but listen to stuff, to positive stuff. Listen to stuff that, that, that's feeding you in a positive way. You know, Zig Ziglar was like the king of that. And, you know, you check up on the neck up and all that stuff. Yeah. But, but the reality was, is that, you, you got to be in a positive frame of mind to go out there and sell and be successful in selling. Do you think that there's a, a fine line or a pretty broad line between providing information a few different ways, whether it's this, the same information, just a few different from a few different angles and being that overly pushy salesman? That's such a great question. <laughs> <laughs> so, Okay, so let me move back to the belief system, right? <laughs> so in my mind, I understood that the benefit that I was going to get from that sale was minuscule in comparison to the benefit that they were going to get from buying. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it was in my own mind, I it was like, you know, listen, I, unless you're making me the beneficiary, you know, you're the one that benefits. And I think what it was, and I'm telling you, I, it may sound pushy because I would go through like six or seven no's, but there's never a time. And, and I, I was in thousands of households. There's never a time I got a complaint, never a time that somebody said, Hey, you're pushy. Because the one thing they knew was that when I was pushing, it was for their benefit, not for my benefit, for their benefit. You know, the minute that, that it wasn't for their benefit and it was for my benefit was, was the minute that, that you start going at the wrong angle. Got it. So, you know, that's kind of the way I believed in it. What are your thoughts around the negative connotations and, and thoughts that people have about uh, insurance and insurance salesmen, life specifically life insurance salesmen as being this kind of smarmy kind of dirty thing. I, like not a, that like I agree with that. Like a car salesperson. Yeah. And it's not that I agree with that because I I've talked to enough people and the truth be told, I actually at one point had my insurance license. I, I see the value to it. Um, and I understand that, you know, it's it's not one package fits all. And as long as you can have a, a service to provide somebody and be able to explain them why that service is important, you know, that, that, that's the angle that I would have pushed it from. But what are your, your thoughts regarding the, the all the negativity that kind of sometimes surrounds the industry? Um, you know, I think at, in any sales organization, I think that there are going to be people that are like that, but I don't think that's the majority of them. I think that that's, that's kind of the, the far and few in between though, you know, when I started in the seventies, it was like a madman 
type thing, you know, it, it really was. And um, there was a lot of things that I thought, man, when I get into leadership, I am never going to do this. I'm never going to allow people to do this, you know, but some of the things that were accepted in it at that time. So I think that there's like a caricature, you know, of the insurance salesman. I think that you see it in movies and television shows and, and they create this that negative stereotype. Yeah, thank you. The negative stereotype. Same thing for car salespeople. You know, it's the same. It's the same thing. So, um, you know, I I I had you know almost ten thousand salespeople, and um, it was it was far and few that I would ever get you know that that type of complaint. But you know, it it also is up to us as leaders to keep saying, Hey, you know, here's the bigger picture and this is why they need it. And this is why, you know, how you do good for your family and, and for their family, and how you do good for the community. And, you know, it's, it's always, it, it's the tone from the top. And, and if you're not creating that tone, then you allow it to get out of control, like Wells Fargo and, you know, some of the other sales things. I, I, I think that kind of nailed it. The, the notion that if you allow and promote bad behavior without any consequences, all that's going to do is promote more bad behavior. Yes. As a leader, how, how do you build and create the environment where your team not only buys into either the product you're selling or, or the company in and of itself, but able to retain them and keep them working hard for you? So um, I touched on this earlier about characteristics of a leader. Um, I, I think the number one characteristic of a leader is that they, they need to be visionary. You know, they, they need to see further than the people that they're leading. And, and if I can create this vision of success. If I can show them the way to, to have success for their families, do right for the community. If I can show them all the things that, that they need to. And, and as I said, show results that, that it works, you know, then, then they, they start to do this buy-in and, um, you know, it's, it's actually, I've said, like, if you're a leader and you're not spending an hour of your day daydreaming, then, then you're not doing the primary part of your job, which is figuring out how to grow, mm -hmm. figuring out how to, you know, how for your people to make money. You know, everybody has to win. The, the customer has to win. The company has to win. Everybody has to win in this situation. So you're, you're constantly trying to create uh, this win-win situation. Um, I think you have to set strong systems, you know, systems that if all of a sudden I was out of the picture, that things aren't falling down, that, that they're able to stay up. I think you better have really good inspection systems. And I think leaders fall short on this. I think that they go, okay, I've got a system. <laughs> uh, and they just assume that that system is being followed. I would go the opposite way and assume that they're not being followed. 
And because of that, I'm going to build certain inspection systems into that to make sure that it's being done. It's like, you know, your kids say to you, wait, you don't trust me. You don't, you know, you inspect. Well, no, <laughs> I, did trust you. I just want to inspect that. What I told you is being done. And it's the same thing with my organization. Cause I know, I know for a fact that if the systems are being done correctly, then, then everything good is going to happen. And if, parts of it is starting to fall down, then nothing good is going to happen. So it's up to me to, to inspect the systems that, that I put in play. I like that. I like that philosophy a lot. (laughs) As you've touched on a few times with certain characteristics of a leader, aside from the ones that you've mentioned, are there any other core principles or, or good characteristics that you think all good leaders should have or should possess? Well, number one is they got to have perseverance. I mean, <laughs> you better have perseverance. I also think that, you know, I told you the, the second um, uh, mentor I had, the founder of the company, you know, taught about this putting back into the community. Um, we created a thing called Closer to the Heart. And it just happened that the my third mentor, we were at a meeting and we're driving and it's a nice resort and there's all sorts of poverty around us and except around the resort. Right. And, and we kind of made this commitment that wherever we go, wherever we have a meeting, convention, a salesman, wherever we go, that that community was going to be better when we left it. And so I started asking these salespeople at the conventions and the leaders to donate money to some charity that we would find. And it was amazing. Like all of a sudden out of the blue, we, it could be a, a women's abuse shelter or, you know, the seeing eye, the, the, the dogs. It's, it's, and all of a sudden out of the blue, we would call them up and say, Hey, we'd like to raise, and we raised 30, $40,000 at an event that was just it was out of the blue to them. Yeah. It was like, we didn't even fundraise. These people <laughs> called us. But for me in leading an organization, it was, it was that part of telling everybody, okay, listen, you, you're blessed, man. You're earning a lot of money. Everything's good. Now give back, give back your responsibility, give back. And, and when you promote that at the top, then it, 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 it reaches all levels of the company. So, you know, I think that, I think that we have responsibilities to, to, to do all of those things. If you take on that role of leadership. I'm a firm believer that, and you've mentioned a number of times that about failure, but I, I truly believe that failure is, is probably one of the best teachers that we have in life. What are some of your, your greater failures that you attribute the success that you've gain throughout your life. Yeah. So I, listen, I, John Maxwell wrote a book called failing forward. (laughs) It's, it's such a great book. You know, I, I think, you know, I, I do think that, that my philosophy about making decisions and making wrong ones that, that were so scared to make a wrong decision and, and that that would uh, create a failure and, and I would say to people that that if you if if you make a wrong decision, well, you know, you're not married to it. Make a new one. You're not stuck 
on wrong decisions. There's so many times where I've said, you know, I've got new data and this data tells me, uh-uh, we're walking down that wrong road, even though I thought that was the decision. And even though people will try to say to me, but you said, and I did say, and I did make a decision, but now I have new data and I'm going to create a new decision. And, and, and the only thing I can say about the, the, the failure part is that if you just persevere, if you just keep moving forward, those periods of your life where you think it was such a failure, if you just move forward, you just look back and go, that was a bump in the road. Nothing's as bad as it seems. Nothing's as good as it seems. So at that moment where you think everything's so bad, it isn't. You'll get out of it. You'll move past it. And you know what? And the most important part of it all is you'll learn from it. And it will make you a better person. It will make you a better leader because you've made that mistake. And now you're making a new decision and and you're going to learn from it. Listen, uh, I wish I was born a natural salesperson or a natural born leader or a natural born CEO. I wasn't far from it. Everything is learned behavior. And part of that learned behavior was making the wrong decisions, uh, you know, having those failures and then moving forward. I wish more people, more people had that, that thought process that, I wholeheartedly agree that people get hung up on failures. They get hung up on the fear of failing and they don't embrace whatever that failure is. The other point that you made that I think is absolutely crucial, especially given the current climate for lack of a better term is the idea that if you are, you make a decision and new information is presented to you that you're able to, reprocess your position and adjust. Yeah. I, I think there's too many people who, for whatever reason, immediately ignore any information that comes at them. They're stuck. That, that that's counter to what they are, what they believe. You, you mentioned beliefs before. I mean, and there are some beliefs that people have that they hold so dear to their core. It, it changes who they are as a person that when they hear something that, for most other people might seem logical and rational and unbiased. They just hear because it's counter to their, their thought process and beliefs that it's just, it, it's not true. It's, it's, it's false yeah. counter. Um, yeah. That was a perfect statement. <laughs> and I'm, that, I'm yeah. thankful that other people have that, that thought process. <laughs> so before I get into my questions, where can people find you, find your book, um, learn more about you? Yeah, so um, they can order the book on Amazon. Once again, it's under the most unlikely leader. Um, and then also you can go to my website, rogersmith.me. That's rogersmith.me. Uh, that has all my social media links. It has my bio. You can order the book from the website. Uh, please do. Um, and if you like it, do a good review. If you don't like it, do what your mama said and don't say a word. <laughs> uh, I'll make sure that all those go into the uh, into the show notes. <laughs> uh, let's see. 
go with the first question. Would you rather have your house smell like a skunk or rotting trash? Oh, I could do the skunk. I used to live out in the country in Texas. There's a lot of skunks up. <laughs> There's a lot of good smells out in the country when you get far enough away from everything. <laughs> would you rather save your house from a flood or a fire? I would rather save my house from a flood. I actually live at the beach and <laughs> I live in Florida and, you know, I'm always thinking about the hurricanes, but I think I'd rather move in the flood part than the fire part. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a little more salvage that can come out of a flood as opposed to a, uh, to a fire. Yes. Uh, would you rather have a scary dentist or a creepy doctor? I would rather have a creepy doctor. I've had scary dentists. I don't like them. <laughs> I always seem to have. Close. <laughs> I always seem to have decent dentists. As as a kid, and, and even the current one that I've been using for the last however many years, he's he's just awesome. I love him. So I, I would go with this with the scary dentist because at least then you can get some painkillers and they can be scary all they want. <laughs> would you rather movies have more sequels or less remakes? Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's just so dependent on whether I like the movie. <laughs> if I like the movie, I want all the sequels in the world, you know? It's like... <laughs> At some point, it it might turn into kind of beating a dead horse, but I think that the, that there could be a way to well, kind of keep it fresh. I'm... It, it, you're right. I mean, yeah, I did get tired of Rocky after... <laughs> five or six or something. <laughs> I, I just, I, I get infuriated when I see, you know, they're remaking this movie. They're remaking that movie. It's just like, it was great as it was. Don't mess with it. Right. <laughs> exactly. uh, one more. Would you rather live with the residents of Mayberry or Smallville? I, uh, wow. So I think I would la- rather live with the residents of Mayberry. Agreed. Smallville has too many catastrophes. Right. Coming along thanks to Superman, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I would I would agree with uh, Mayberry. Nice, quiet country place. <laughs> yeah. With that, I, I appreciate your time. I appreciate the uh, the candor and the information. Any last words? <laughs> no, listen. I, I uh, thank you for you know the way you interviewed. Thank you for your questions. <laughs> uh, it was great. It was great. I appreciate it. Uh, I hope you know if 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 you're in a place in your life where, where you feel like the, uh, you know, the deck is stacked against you or you're just stuck, you're trying to move over. I hope that move out of it, move forward. I hope that my book, um, the most unlikely leader can, can help you, can inspire you, can motivate you to, uh, to get past where you are at this point in life. I think that's a, a crucial thing of having that perpetual, optimistic outlook on life like you said nothing's as good as it seems but nothing is as bad as it seems as well so thanks for listening to another episode of adding context you can follow us on twitter facebook instagram or visit us at addingcontext.com you can also support our show via patreon send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com